0: Yeah. No, if there's any hope, it's it's knowing how terrified they are at all times. And they are (laughs) so terrified of this waiver. Anything that suggests it doesn't have to be this way is a risk that the whole game would be up.
1: welcome to the death panel to support the show and get access to all of our monday episodes become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel you know we've got a great guest coming up we've got Alexander eye check here to, we're
2: going to talk to in a minute yeah
1: yeah to talk to you about his work um about the trips waiver about the sort of history of pharma's propaganda war to become the sort of global hegemonic extra state power that it is now
3: yeah alex has been doing like Incredible reporting on this, and it's also like it's worth thinking about that, like essentially we're in this place where now trips is in the trips waiver is the thing that's being debated, and obviously there's like a, a huge question mark in terms of like what the U.S. is going to do. But what Alex kind of shows is. Uh, that's actually missing a lot of the bigger picture.
2: Yeah, I think, um, and this is something that we're going to get into with Alex in a second, basically. like, So we've talked a lot about trips. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a lot about I mean, we've talked a lot about intellectual property in general recently, weirdly. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, including something like the conversation we had with Vicky Osterweil, for example. Um, And I think it's funny because, you know, we so readily talk all the time about how, uh, you know, we we mention all the time on the show, for example, how like police are, you know, uh, not some law of nature, but are a actually recent recent in the long arc of things. Right. Uh, Historical development and things like uh, intellectual property for pharmaceuticals and things like the trips council for example <laughs> are even less old or even are yeah. even are even newer um there's a there's a line in one of uh alex's recent pieces where he says that like the trips council is younger than justin bieber which is true right um and but you know you wouldn't think so hearing uh hearing like pharmaceutical executives talk about this hearing uh, frankly not even just pharmaceutical uh, executives but uh people who launder their um who longer their takes in op-eds and, and media platforms like Ashish Ja or something who uh who's like the head of the uh Dean of the Brown School of Public yeah, Health. Yeah. Exactly. Who's uh who's the dean of the uh uh school of public health at Brown University, who goes on TV all the time and says uh and you know says basically all the standard pharmaceutical uh industry talking points. And the and I think it's you know it's important to look at that. And I think what we wanted to do today and what we're gonna talk about with Alex is how that uh how all how that sort of entire regime uh was socially constructed especially throughout the course of uh we we start a little bit earlier but throughout the course of the 20th century and how the 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 trips council how that was itself socially constructed and through a strong-arming process by pharmaceutical companies and uh and other industries really who saw the the moment as like ripe to kind of like rally behind no i think i think one of the the things that
3: for me, the way I experience this whole story, generally speaking, is that like trips and the WTO, it's this really rarefied world that there's this huge black box around, and I think that yeah. that that uh, vagueness and that remoteness is part of how power works uh, in this world. And I think the great thing about Alex's writing is that he actually brings like that story to life and and shows that there's flesh and blood there and shows that there's human beings with you know who are actually very afraid of like losing their power at any moment <laughs> with are very uh, but obvious also who, agendas. who need to like work constantly to maintain it and i think that that yeah. actually illustrates like the the kind of social reproductive work that you know in a way, it has to happen.
1: Right. And, and I mean, you know, the pharmaceutical industry for, for a couple decades has spent significant intellectual energy, significant piles of money to to really sit down and formulate this new um, perception of what they are, what they do. And they've created this, like, huge reality for themselves of, like, what pharma can own, how pharma can own. and And these are all things that, like, Yeah, they might seem sort of over like overwhelming displays of of global dominance and power, but they're also incredibly fragile social constructions that don't have a whole lot holding them up.
2: Yeah, there's something actually, for example, that we uh, that uh, that. Alex is going to reference a lot uh, called the drug story, um, which was which was sort of a PR strategy uh, by pharma, and I think maybe this is a good way to segue into uh, we'll we'll get to the we'll get to the interview. But actually, one of the ways that this was upheld, which I think becomes a really interesting part of the narrative, basically of how stuff how we got to having something like a trips council, right? right? Uh, to which has this uh, this you know power to keep. Um, countries like India, uh, South Africa, Brazil, whoever, from manufacturing whatever drugs that they want to, right? Because, you know, intellectual property protections, patent rights for pharmaceuticals didn't exist in most of the world uh, in or in, even in the United States until a certain point, but didn't exist in most of the world until very recently. Um, and how interestingly, you know, one of the the sort of the PR strategy, the telling the quote-unquote drug story was actually was the strategy essentially tied up inherently in in the sort of like anti-communist uh crusade it was the idea that having uh having patent protections using intellectual property to protect your drugs and things like that were what were set was something that was separating you know quote-unquote western interests from the demons of socialized medicine uh and and those things and this extended to the point of one of the central things uh i mentioned this because we're gonna we're gonna talk about it uh we, we didn't get like explicit or into the into the weeds on this but like the the drug story pr narrative that is told by pharmaceutical companies uh, in, in, you know, the mid 20th century. One of the, I think, ARC examples of this was an ad which was sort of playing on sort of uh, American versus Soviet fears or, or whatever uh, anxieties, basically. Um, but an ad uh, promoting pharmaceutical development that asked very blatantly, quote, who's winning the human race?
1: Oh. (laughs) Um, Oh, Extending
2: the metaphor from the space race to... You know to essentially i mean there was a fear that uh there that was
1: like the first um su- like subheading for one billion americans <laughs>
2: <laughs> right yeah one billion americans who's
1: winning the
2: human race <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah no um no but uh this hu- this this advertisement uh who's winning the human race was playing off of these uh these media stereotype was playing off these media stereotypes at in the period where you had this idea building up that uh, the Soviets had all of these uh, extra doctors and medical staff that they were uh, that they were training. Uh, not only was there there the threat that uh, maybe they would either steal, quote unquote, or or uh, or develop new drugs that then would not be, you know, would be like withheld some somehow from the, quote unquote, free world or whatever. <sighs> but that this this excess medical staff quote unquote excess medical staff would be sent to other countries who would then become emissaries for communism and this was like this was you know one of the again (laughs) winning the human race I think uh what better (sighs) what better narrative could you uh could you hope from uh, I don't know the position of uh, the global pharmaceutical industry in terms of protecting uh its bedfellow capitalism right yeah
1: Beautiful. It's synergy. Anyway, True synergy. So, right? without
2: belaboring it uh, too much. Yeah,
1: let's get into the interview. Yeah,
2: let's, let's do the interview. All right.
1: Let's get right into it because we have a terrific guest joining us today. Please welcome author and journalist Alexander Zajicik. Um So, we have Alex here today because he's written several excellent pieces throughout the pandemic on the COVID-19 vaccine and intellectual property regimes, one of which called Long Strange Trips, The Grubby History of How Vaccines Became Intellectual Property came out on June 1st in New Republic. And his next book, due January 22 from Counterpoint Press, is called Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19. So in past episodes, we've talked a lot about the proposed waiver to the World Trade Organization's TRIPS agreement and the debate over COVID-19 vaccine intellectual property and One thing that we've mentioned um, is that though it's been painted as some sort of radical and extreme measure the idea of a trips waiver itself is really not actually an extraordinary breach of the sort of global trade norms that it is claimed to be and it's really important to understand that the structure of the trips agreement was very much designed first and foremost with industry interests in mind and the interests of u.s empire And pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and people like Bill Gates, who in recent years have become very involved in pharma IP debates, have placed a really heavy thumb on the scale when trying to shape these policies and also how they're enforced. So a lot of Alex's work has obviously touched on all of this. And we wanted to talk today about where TRIPS actually comes from and how the pharmaceutical industry has really mobilized over the years and really had a huge influence on the development of how we think of you know global medicine and global access. And I think in order to understand why TRIPS really is the way it is and why we're in this situation right now with the vaccine, it's really important to understand the sort of prehistory of TRIPS. And I think, Alex, you do a really good job of situating it within this broader mid-20th century shift that was sort of a way to change the way that medicine was managed at an international scale.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks for that. One of the things that is striking, which you sort of mentioned just now, is the way TRIPS is discussed as if it's almost this sanctuary or some sort of sacred chamber a royal society with some ancient bylaws, you know, like, published the first volume of Newton or something. And that's how we figured out gravity, but it's like the complete opposite. And that has been really lost in the victory, quite frankly, this incredible sort of propaganda coup on the part of a relatively small number of industries that mobilized in the 60s, 70s, ultimately emerged victorious in the eighties and mid nineties with the WTO to Institute this regime that really came out of nowhere and was mm-hmm. deeply resisted by the vast majority of governments on the planet and their
3: people. Alex, one thing that you mention in the uh, in the piece, and actually this is the way that you begin the piece, is that, like, whereas I, I always sort of thought about trips as or my like thumbnail understanding of it is like this is just sort of emblematic of the WTO and its politics more generally. The one thing that you begin the piece by saying is that, like, even within the WTO, like, even within the Church of Free Trade, like, this is like TRIPS is a freak. Yeah. I mean,
0: if you go back and look at where the WTO comes out of, it comes out of an entire 50 year negotiating process after World War II called the General Agreements, General Agreement on Tariff and Trade. And that wasn't an institution so much as a kind of network or a running conversation between the North and the South over how to organize the flow of goods and reduce trade barriers. It was, it was premised on uh, ideology of free trade. And within that system, there is really no place for protectionism of any kind. Um, it just doesn't fit. It's, it's, it's a square peg in, in a round hole. And that is why attempts to insert any form of protectionism, including copyright um, logos, was, was bounced out as not appropriate because those were basically state protection rackets. And there was no precedent for that. And they were considered um, non-sequiturs. It was really only in the late 70s when the pharmaceutical industry, especially most notably Pfizer, who took the lead on this issue, um, started to get traction, bringing together other emerging industries with a strong interest in copyright and patent protection in global markets. And then when Reagan came into power, they had an ally a very powerful ally. Uh, And they basically got it on the agenda for the Uruguay round, which began in 1986. But there was a lot of lobbying that took place between 1980 and 1986. And a lot of groups came out of the woodwork, Um, the Intellectual Property Committee, the International IP Alliance, all these lobby groups. Which were basically the same industries, you know, in different formations with different attack plans. But the, the goal was the same to force intellectual property to the center of this otherwise free trade agenda and shift public opinion to a point where that made sense, even though that was quite a bit of a magic trick. And the system that they used was something known as the generalized system of preferences, which was originally about increasing the developing world's access to the US, mostly the agricultural market. Um, It was designed to help the the global south sell their goods. And what this alliance of industries did was, is they turned what was supposed to be a a US trade regime to help poor countries into a carrot and stick to drive IP into the trade agenda. And basically what they did was exactly what you think they would do. They said, you now have access to our coveted markets for your agriculture and textile as well. Mostly late 70s, early 80s, they're getting access. 140 countries for the first time can sell their goods in, in, in the U.S. market and other wealthy countries. Suddenly they're told, if you wanna keep these privileges, you're gonna have to adopt these laws. And they basically said no. And the Caribbean was used as a sort of testing ground for what one of the US TR guys called the H-bomb of trade policy. And it worked. They basically forced Jamaica, the Dominican Republic, countries that had no IP regime whatsoever, no patent system, basically forced them to adopt very stringent US style patent regimes in exchange for maintaining access to the US market. And when that worked, they took that model to Gap, and they basically inflicted it on all the other countries in the GATT round, building up to the WTO in 94. And that's sort of the, the sketch of, of, of that path.
1: Right. And I mean, before this, like before this like plan sort of like starts to roll out, which is you're saying takes decades. One of the things you talk about in your in your piece is that this was kind of actually absolutely against the norm of how, you know, medicine and like technological innovation, specifically in the health arena, were even thought of, you know, what was the kind of uh, like landscape that was like being disrupted with these these pushes?
0: Well, you can go all the way back to the origins of intellectual property in Elizabethan England, to, <laughs> to sort of find the first expression of what was known as the taboo, the medical monopoly taboo, which basically said, you know, monopoly is a carve out. Uh, patents are a, a carve out for monopoly. Like most, mostly monopolies are bad. We don't tolerate them, but we make an exception for patents. But within the patent exception, there was an even more sacred exception which was patents related to foods and medicine Mm -hmm. are out of bounds because, you know, back then, medicine, remember, was like a horrifying experience, basically didn't exist. You know, waking surgery, it was just a nightmare. So if you invented something that made life a little bit more, you know, painless and and you increased the lifespan somehow and reduced suffering, The idea that you were gonna control that for profit and restrict anybody's access to that was just like the mark of the most profound evil, right? And and it, it makes sense. Like the guy who invented ether, um, this guy Morton, who's an American, I mean, he was the one who made it possible to have unconscious surgery, but he didn't come out of the medical field, he was a dentist, so he wasn't steeped in the same um sort of conventional ethics of the time, which was you don't patent drugs or medicines. And when he tried to patent it, because he had this sort of, you know, patent medicine, sort of PT Barnum mentality about his, his <laughs> discovery, he was just savaged. He was just absolutely savaged. Nobody respected the patent. And he was like hoisted on a, you know, stick in all the medical <laughs> journals, as a, the symbol of <laughs> creed and and knavery of of the 19th century. What an idea. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that was like normal. Like that's just, that's how it was. Pharmacists, doctors, medical schools, medical journals, like the the pharmaceutical and the medical establishments, both were the gatekeepers of this taboo. They were, it was known as ethical medicine and ethical pharmacy. And the only people who patented um, health products were basically frauds. Right, the, the PT Barnum's, the snake oil salesman, and if you made a real medicine, you didn't patent it, and if you did patent it, it wasn't even included in the pharmacopoeia, which was what doctors used to prescribe back in the day. Like you couldn't even get in
1: the book. It's it, it's just so different. It is so he, uh, you're you're telling this
3: story, which sounds like very very. Like that 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 makes a lot of sense. I would imagine, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, does pharma have like an alternate history of this? Or do they just presume that no one will read the actual history?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean pharma absolutely that's the great question. Pharma, when they discovered propaganda in the second half of the 20th century, and they really <laughs> became into their own as like the post-ethical industry we know today. Right. And that right. was actually a phrase that was used back then, the post-ethical drug industry. Because it, before it was the ethical drug industry. Love it.
2: Right. <laughs> to, to separate the illicit uh, from illicit drugs, right? right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but then they all became post-ethical.
0: And when they did, that's exactly what they did. They invented something called the drug story. That's how they talked about propaganda. We have to retell the drug story. We have to make it so that when people think about drugs, they think about patents and innovation together. One is impossible without the other. And that was a tough sell. That was a real tough sell. But that was the focus beginning in, you know, the 40s right up till now. That's still the same basic line. They haven't changed that at all. The the drug story of twining patents and innovation and monopoly. Um, But before that, there was there was like a period in the first half of the 20th century where it was like a transition phase. And we do not have to get too much into that, but the Germans basically showed up and taught the the U.S. drug companies how to be monopolists.
1: Right. Because
0: <laughs> the, there was a loophole in the U.S. patent system where drug monopolies were legal. They just weren't used. You know, They were banned in Europe, um, mostly for the most part banned in England. We were like the exception, but it just wasn't done for because of this, this ethical stricture. It's taboo, but the Germans showed up in the 1890s, Bayer, Poshed, mm-hmm. and they were like, Well, screw it. If it's on the books, we're going to patent aspirin and we're going to, you know, patent uh, all these other, you know, miracle drugs that we've developed because we've got this crazy advanced chemical industry. And that was really uh, when the US companies were like, Wait a second, you can do that. <laughs> and they resisted right. for a long time. And there was a split. And then the universities started to patent in the 20s and 30s. They said, and they justified it as, you know, well, we're doing it to fund more research. And they basically mm. gave the drug industry their, their line. in a way, they, they cut the template saying, well, this is just going to, you know, support more, more labs. So that's why it's justified. Mm-hmm. But th- the rest of the world never really got on board with it until the second half of the 20th century. 30 years is probably delay between U.S., in Europe, depending on the country. But, you know, Spain was, was a laggard. Switzerland, um, I think it was the last one, 1977. I mean, we were probably alive when Switzerland, the second biggest drug country in the world, did not allow drug patents, did not recognize them. So, yeah, this is all very new. And and uh, for a poor country, it was shocking that it would ever even be be tabled, let alone forced on them.
1: Right. And, and so there are a couple of... Um early challenges to what starts to become this idea that that American pharmaceutical innovation or the American market is really not only the place to make money, but to sort of start to assert global dominance. And the idea that you could sort of be a, a global pharmaceutical company really st- sort of develops like starting in the, the 50s. And you talk about this instance that happens in 1951 with India, where you have India um, trying to build a penicillin factory, and it's it, it actually like mirrors the situation with what we what leaked with the Pfizer contracts during the COVID vaccine negotiations, where they were basically saying to countries in the global South, you have to put up your embassy as you know collateral in order to indemnify us for any potential negligence or anything wrong with the vaccine or whatever and you talk about this situation in india where where merck basically comes into india and says listen we'll build this penicillin factory for you and here are all our royalty demands and uh, limits on what you're going to be able to do with this tech could you tell us a little bit about that that story
0: yeah and i apologize i got a little bit sidetracked talking about the 19th century. That's the other important context <laughs> to trips is no, the post-war no. North South dynamic, which is the more immediate context for trips and probably the, the more important one. So after World War II, you have countries getting their independence across Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and they have, you know, no real infrastructure. they have been forced to buy products from mm-hmm. The colonial nation, and they've been shipping out their raw materials, and uh, they realized that you know it would be good if they could make their own medicines. And there was a, an internationalist vision for development after World War II that was embraced across the UN system, including by the most important states in that system, the U.S. and, and the Soviet Union, that basically said. It is in our interests, and they both had their own idea of what their interests were. Obviously, they were sort of competing for these countries, as we all know, but they they both supported um, the UN helping these countries get on their feet and be able to take care of themselves. And, you know, the UN Conference on Trade and Development was sort of the the key organization in this, but so was the early WHO, UNICEF, UNESCO, they all kind of fanned out and and provided resources and funding for a lot of fledgling industries, including uh, medicines. And India is the big player here. India has kind of always driven the the south side of of the line in, in this story. And that penicillin factory was like a prime example, an early success of that UN agenda, that UN internationalist development agenda in which the companies were basically told to go screw and um, the interests of people in these countries that had been, you know, had all their wealth sucked out for the last 200 years were put first. And that was the basis for political organizing by these countries at the international level for the next, you know, 30 years, usually within the UN. In the G77 was one expression of it. The non-aligned movement was another expression, but they organized through the UN where they had, you know, power because it was a, you know, the nature of majority voting in, in the UN system. Uh, and also because they were playing the, the two East West sides off each other, and all that. Uh, but basically they, they were having success in driving a very different idea of, technology as universal property, but also as a matter of entitlement because of this massive wealth transfer that they had been subjected to for so long. They're like, you know what? We deserve a penicillin factory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We absolutely should have a mandatory institutionalized North-South tech transfer system in place to help us build up our industry so we're not dependent on these companies who are trying to keep colonialism going through other means. And those calls got more and more strident into the 1970s and they kind of peaked with that meeting at The Who that I mentioned at Alma Ata in Kazakhstan, which was USSR at the time. They said, look, these are our demands. And there was this call for a new international economic order. Like these were very serious demands around pretty hardcore (laughs) organizing by a lot of countries and pfizer was sort of the company on the u.s side who watched this with the most concern and began to organize around a counter-assault earliest um led by this guy ed pratt you don't need to get too much into that but basically he started to collect the the drug companies and say look you realize that they're challenging our future control of the world market of medicines and this has to be dealt with like they have to be put down And that's exactly what happened.
1: Right. I mean, it's kind of actually like fascinating to think about how completely the narrative has shifted since the '70s, since the '50s, um, where you have basically the the pharmaceutical companies deciding, okay, we've got this monopoly system in the United States that's making a lot of money, and we want to expand globally. And um, the intellectual framework for doing that doesn't really exist, right? So it's it's interesting because they have to both out of whole cloth sort of take these principles of like, intellectual property and patent rights, which is very obviously tied up in the general propaganda project of the United States at the time, which is like, you know, in the post-war era, really forwarding the United States as a dominant leader, especially in technology, Mm -hmm. pharma becomes a big part of that image. And it's it's really fascinating to see how, you know, as the like the U.S. preference for sort of appearing dominant on the global stage. Increases, you also see pharma being a big part of that, but also really benefiting from the US taking that position.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you just kind of hit it on the head. There was basically a swap in protectionisms, there was a redefinition Mm -hmm. of protectionism to accommodate for the rise of the knowledge slash information economy. And what used to be protectionism was tariffs, right? Like the old manufacturing industries, domestic agriculture industries, you know, they wanted to keep other products out. So they didn't like the generalized system of preferences that allowed pharma to use the carrot and stick to get their IP protected abroad. So what they did was they basically beat down the traditional opponents of what used to be protectionism and said, no, 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 no. That's not protectionism. What the protectionism that we need to fight for is the protectionism of IP and computer code and, you know, drug patents around the world. That's much more important than your Detroit factory or your corn farm. So it's not a coincidence that when those things start to go down, you see a a resurgence in influence and also effectiveness of enforcing U.S. um, drug patents abroad. And that push was kind of, you know, one of them had to give. And that's, that's kind of the swap that happened.
1: You talk about some of the things that uh, the UN was doing at the time um, to just like roll back to the instance in the 50s with India that you mentioned, which was basically, as you talk about, the UN was going around granting funds to uh, nations in the global south. And they came with stipulations, but the stipulations were things like, You know this factory that we're going to give you money to build must remain in um, public ownership, and you have to engage in technology transfer. and And it's really interesting to think about, especially during the COVID pandemic, like what those circumstances would have given us in terms of leverage and advantages, even early on, if these infrastructures had been allowed to develop. If this mission that um, you know the G seventy seven had of Global public health by the year 2000. If that had been able to develop, if if Pfizer and you know Merck had not intervened, it would have been a completely different um, scenario and a completely different global public health landscape. Not just that the COVID 19 pandemic would have occurred in the context in, but stuff like the HIV AIDS epidemic in the beginning of that. Fight and the global access issues that have arisen out of that, you know, would have been totally different because it's it, it basically what happens starting in the 50s is just as you're saying this complete inversion of both mission understanding, the public awareness, and and part of it is as you're saying this big myth building exercise. So, can we talk a little bit about like what what Pfizer did and what the messaging, what the messaging was that they were actually trying to push to to change this?
0: Yeah. Yeah, It would be a different world. Uh, it's 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 a really painful kind of counterfactual to, to think about um, what kind of might have been. And, and even a lot of the stuff that was built up during the, the 50s and 60s and 70s was, you know, just gutted with privatization, consolidation and defunding and all the rest of it. So even the successes that took place, um, there are still monuments to it, like Hindustan Antibiotics in India, which is that penicillin factory grew into. Um, is still here and um, they're still doing a lot of research and, and um, making a ton of generics for the world. But the counterattack began, you know, I quote a couple people in the piece, um, both a U.S. trade official bragging it was less than 50 people. And then uh, one of his Indian counterparts who's just confirmed that in a different way, saying it was like this parody of a conspiracy theory. I mean, it was literally like <laughs> a handful of pharma CEOs in the early 70s started having lunch in like you know some fancy club
1: like an and actual smoke-filled room yeah you know, it was, it was you know, an actual pa- smoke-filled panel of room. axis of evil global cabal
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and uh and then they started networking among um like-minded industries and then they started this second track when public anxiety over you know this new thing called competitiveness which know, it was a new word that was kind of invented by these industries. Um, People were obviously anxious, you know, the oil shocks and stagflation and and all that all that stuff we associate with that period um, was real. And people were, um, you know, scared. So they were told, well, listen, if you if you want to protect the U.S. economy, I mean, if you want to get back to the golden days. You know, mm-hmm. you need to protect American innovation abroad because these countries are just <laughs> taking it from you. These these poor countries, these Asian pirate states are just, you know, they're, they're taking your your bread um, right out of your bowl. So you need to we need to put an end to it. And um, and that was the tune. And it was a very well funded, very well organized um public information campaign. And then on the inside track, of course, they were in the administration deep. Um, Reagan named Pratt, the CEO of Pfizer, um, right. the head of the advisory committee on, on trade right before the year round. So he was like inside about as deep as you can get in the White House, basically running the show and writing policy. Him and the CEO of IBM at the time.
3: So, I mean, like one, one thing that I think is like really striking is that when you look at the early, the, you know, the sort of, before pharma got wise on the the propaganda arm of its of its mission and and long before any of these sort of changes in the sort of international economic order, you did have domestic actors within the United States like Estes Kefavre uh, in Congress, like really mobilized around (laughs) some of these issues, particularly the way that the, the pharmaceutical industry can sort of take advantage of its sort of privileged position and pr- the sort of provision of of essential, you know, goods and services, you know, and sort of like exposing that and, and trying to tee it up. But like one, it, it seems like one sort of implication of what you've been writing is, it's not merely that these sort of firms are uh, like continuing to like lobby and, you know, have, you know, constructed this very favorable um, uh, institutional arrangement at the international level. But also that that's sort of become the reality for members of Congress, such that it, it's hard to Im- is it I guess in your view, is it hard to imagine an Estes Kefauver, uh existing in the present moment? Is that is there like, you know, do you see any movement on that kind of domestic pressure front uh, here that that's that's sort of
0: there's drug hearings, you know, Lloyd um, Doggett is really good on these issues. Um You know, there are people I don't think there's a a senator. I mean, Bernie Sanders is obviously the most out front and um, strong on these issues. Um, I I can't see him holding three years of hearings uh, on drug prices. And even if he did, I I can't imagine them being front page news the way they were back then. It was just a different world. Um, And also the drug companies weren't quite as sophisticated and and powerful as they are now, although they were getting there pretty fast. Um, I mean, the thing is. The the outrage against uh, monopoly pricing and and the sleight of hand that allows the companies to defend their monopolies um, as the price of progress is always on thin ice. And it always has been. And they know that. And that's why they spend so much on lobbying and, uh, quote unquote, the drug story, because they know that it's just one. the, The next scandal is always just around the corner. And that they're basically on a thin sheet of ice and um, it has to be reinforced constantly at all costs. But I I can't think of another issue where there's so much just like pure, righteous anger where people understand instinctively that something is like deeply, deeply wrong. So it's a weird paradox in that way.
1: Right. Because there's also this like absolutely dominant narrative, which is the sort of drug story that we've been talking about, where... You have this uh, sort of construction of intellectual property and innovation as this line that has become so primary. I mean, we've talked about it a lot in the context of, um, you know, what's been going on with the Gates Foundation and the COVID-19 vaccine. And I mean, I think one of the things that it might be helpful for people to understand is sort of like how, like, what was the sort of point of a lot of the moves that they were doing? Because it's one thing to look at like what pharma has said that they've done, which is, you know, protect innovation and, and enforce their, their property. But the other thing that they've also done is, is actually that they've developed this system of monopoly and and some of the moves that they specifically do, like strategies of like suing the NHS or coming after um, Mm -hmm. other companies, like the sort of litigious strategies that they use, not only to like enforce their patents, but also as this sort of like deterrent, but also like aggressive move, like that they're like punitive towards countries in the global South, because ultimately I think the principle is that you know, pharmaceutical companies don't really see the global South as their customer base. And this is something we've talked about on the show before, Yeah, you know, and, the, and, and so then it's like the use of that property by, by people who it wasn't designed for becomes this kind of like, you know, uh, conceptual theft. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One quick point first though, just on on the, the point of innovation as the sort of thing that they're always pounding. That's not the problem. Like everyone wants to cure cancer. We all want new medicines the problem is the way they've bound innovation with monopoly as the only possible incentive for scientific progress that's the problem and there are a million ways to incentivize people to do science including nothing at all which is how it worked for a long time Um, (laughs) but we can also you know give them money like the the pharma companies already do it's so funny how they say only patents can incentivize uh, progress when they always (laughs) are running these like cash prize contests. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? There's no other way to do it? Okay. Um, <laughs> but Anyway, I just wanted to, to make that point really quick. <laughs> but regarding what Pfizer and in, in the industry did to sort of try to grow its global control of the market before WTO, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they didn't have a whole lot of luck, but what they could do was take advantage of the fact that these countries didn't have any domestic base. So they just came in and uh, until the Indian and Brazilian and Argentinian and Mexican generics industry was up and running, they just pretty much had had a run of the place. Um, And it's when that competition really started to heat up. That's when they started to organize, when they realized, okay, we're going to lose this. We cannot have a rival power system, you know, just as Washington saw Moscow as this, this counter system that threatened to overtake them and the dominoes falling. I mean, they had sort of a version of that with, with their products and they weren't wrong. I mean, a, a thriving generics industry and, you know, most of the world not respecting drug patents would deeply, deeply cut into their, their profits. Although they'd probably still make money in the U S but their ultimate fear was that it would come back and infect the home market. Right. Like that was the big prize always has been. And they were like, wait, these people are asking questions now. Like during the Kefauver hearings, there was a lot that came up about the price of generic drugs. You know, it was just, it was still fledgling, but Americans were like, wait a second, why are we paying all this money for tetracycline when it can be made for a penny? And those questions, when they start happening, that's what they were afraid of. And they were like, we need to stop these questions from getting back here. And we need to shut down the spigot at its source. So we need to change the laws in these places. And they were going against the current for a long time. I mean, the 72, 70 India Patents Act, which went into effect in 72, um, was like their nightmare. And then that started serving as a model for other countries. And the fact that they were able to turn the tide within 20 years as they were, as they succeeded in doing is pretty remarkable and you know there's a lot of things going on there the collapse of the soviet union
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: the the entry a lot of these countries gained for their agricultural products they were terrified of losing you know reagan basically letting the industry run the government as it saw fit as it needed um you know during the year gray round and writing u.s trade law um but you know i mean it was still pretty masterful quite frankly i mean fact that they saw everything going against them in the early 70s and by the early 90s had this thing almost totally in place yeah. and there was only like two countries left to smash their spine and they were just about there
1: what was it about that 1970 law in India that really had them scared I mean um I I know that you talk about it being sort of way less radical than it could have been because of pharma's lobbying and influence on like the, the conservative right within India. But what was it that they were actually trying to change or overhaul that was like so threatening?
0: Well, until that law was on the books, they still had the Raj patent law. Um,
1: so they were still using like the colonial structure.
0: Yeah, on the books, <laughs> although Nehru had begun to you know turn the page in practice. But you know India was was like the it's it's hard to really reconstruct because it was such a different world. But Nehru was like, I mean he was the the image of post-colonial power. I mean, India was a big deal and and he was a really inspiring figure and he was at the forefront of of all this organizi- organizing that was taking place in the south. and um, he had a lot of power over a lot of uh a lot of things in just terms of his stature and for india to say we're not going to adopt you know drug patents but we will respect process patents which was what europe was doing at the time was you know the whole global south was looking to that and they were like okay well we're going to do the same thing we know that you know the drug companies don't want this we know that there are elements in our own society which would like to maintain the old hierarchies and and the old um, sort of relationships, commercial relationships, but, you know, Nehru showed that it can be done and basically provided a a template, you know, that that patent law could be copied just as uh, the IP lobby was trying to get its own version of patent laws established everywhere.
1: Right. So can we talk a little bit about how, the TRIPS Agreement itself came about. So basically, there's this, you know, as we're saying, there's this sort of decades-long struggle, this ideological mission that pharma has, and their, you know, and their supporters and collaborators and industry to essentially invert the global, like entrenched um, understanding of like uh, how medical care and how medical innovation. Uh, should work, right? so they they basically have this massive project on their hands. They uh, manage to invert the narrative and really assert control and really like have a lot of influence in this space in the global policy arena. So how you know, when does trips come in, and how does that sort of like land in that in that context?
0: When Uruguay opened, the u s was ready with what was basically became TRIPS, the, the minimum standards for IP protection that they wanted enforced as a obligation of membership. And it was like, you know, I don't know, 12 page word document. Single spaced. <laughs> that's all it is. It's a word doc. And it basically it. says you, you have to respect these minimum standards. And that's an important thing to understand about TRIPS. It was meant as a floor,
1: mm-hmm.
0: not a ceiling. Like it, it, What we should have is a ceiling for these things, but it was meant as a floor that's called the minimum standards. And they've been building on it ever since, both in terms of the actual TRIPS document, but also bilaterally and multilaterally. This has always been an ongoing process. And TRIPS was meant to provide the basic framework for that. But a lot of the really gruesome stuff that takes place and a lot of the brutal power plays that keep people in line don't happen within... The WTO Trips Council, they happen across these bilateral um, trading situations or during regional free trade talks. And that's where the, the really nitty gritty 301 stories come out. 301 is this is the policy tool that the U.S. trade representative has to, to basically put a country on notice that they're about to lose all their privileges because they're not up to buy peace enough. And a lot of that stuff happens um, bilaterally. But but Trips provided the sort of the the concrete um, dungeon floor for all this stuff.
1: Right. What are, I mean, what are some of these, like, horror stories? I'm curious. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, probably the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, I don't know if I should say where I heard it from. Uh, it was secondhand. But <laughs> I, can I, I mean, I believe it. We'll
3: bleep it out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, told me that you know, has heard on multiple occasions um, that it's not uncommon for the U.S. side to say to someone on the other side of the table, you know, I heard your kid is a student at the University of Maryland on a student visa. Oh, my God. be a damn shame if anything happened to that visa. Oh, my God. So it was like very personal.
2: <laughs>
0: leverage. It, 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 they described this 301 special as a weapon.
1: <laughs> like it's repeatedly, It's
0: in the record. I mean, one guy called it a crowbar. The other guy called it an H-bomb, which is unfortunate because the first country that was threatened with 301 in the 80s was Japan. And the next oh year, our, our guy called it the H-bomb of trade policy.
1: <laughs> I mean it it's it's funny because you know as you're saying it is this like absolutely cartoonishly evil you know five decade long campaign that is culminating as and you're, as you're saying like US trade representatives like threatening people behind closed doors to enforce this property regime and and what pharma's been able to build build out of that is actually you know it's it's frankly remarkable they they Hoover up small companies it's become this real global structure that um, has this dominance above and beyond what, like, states have as their sort of, like, own capacity, right? And what do you, like, what's your take on, like, this this situation that we're, like, looking at with the, the TRIPS waiver?
0: I mean, the TRIPS waiver is important. The thing that should have been done was the U.S. should have come out and supported CTAP at the beginning and should have said, you know, we own this mRNA platform, (laughs) we're going to put it inside the COVID technology access pool and everyone's going to have access to it and we're going to have a a know-how and um, tech transfer mechanism in place and we're going to train staff and we're going to, you know, do whatever it takes um, to get this thing ramped up as quickly as as humanly possible. That's what should have happened. And, you know, the TRIPS waiver is not going to accomplish any of that. It's just like a a starting point. And we still don't know what... What, if anything, the scope of it will be? Um, I mean, is it just going to be vaccines? Is it going to be treatments? Uh, Is it going to force any of these companies to provide trade secrets? Um, Undisclosed information, they call it. You know, there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, It's not just a question of saying you can't enforce your patents for the next two years. Because Moderna already did that, and it was a joke. I wrote a piece about that for Jacobin. Uh, uh, because all of the information and and all of the actual know-how is wrapped up in in trade secrets, which they absolutely did not give
1: up. Right. You know, one thing that, that uh, we've talked about a lot is the fact that the, the trips by keeping things like in the realm of saying, okay, we have to waive trips in order to reach this like point where we can even start to like assert global access that, that in setting that in and of itself as the the goal, it kind of limits the boundaries of like what can happen in the first place. So even in these like calls to disrupt the, the sort of status quo of, of property relations in the pharma space you know, is being touted by, um, you know, pharma defenders as being this sort of like radical disrupting act or whatever. And it's, you know, transgressive and therefore like should be a net positive to global public health. You know, what it actually does is it like it totally reinforces the idea that that it's valid to subject right. pharmaceuticals to intellectual property in the first place. Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We, we've come to view. <laughs> yeah, we've yeah, this is the new normal to such an extent that tinkering with it is considered a big deal when in fact it should be the opposite, especially during a generational pandemic. It shouldn't even be an issue. Again, it speaks to the success that they've had, sort of changing the way we we think and look at things, which again, this is a separate interview maybe but was something that they very consciously set out to do in the 70s there's a famous meeting that happened at the university of chicago organized by uh the drug companies and george stigler in which he basically told them he's like look lobbying and all this cold war you know rhetoric and all this sort of you know frontal attack stuff you guys have been doing for the 50s and 60s is great but you need to think a little more more you have to be more sophisticated we need to change the way people think about regulation, change the way people think about monopoly. And that's what Robert Bork did for the 70s. He went around and basically rewrote the history of antitrust law in the United States and changed the way we think of this stuff, it rewired the the American brain and the American legal mind and, and legal history. And that's what... the the law and economics movement is really about and that was funded by pharma from the beginning the first issue of the law and economics journal was funded by eli Lilly. oh that's
3: that's a that's a good piece of history that people should just know just get a tattoo of that i think i'm gonna get that tattooed on my chest um but this is actually this is a really good point though um alex because you know one of the things that i've been sort of fascinated by here is the way that this sort of power works. And I mean, obviously what you show, and I think we've talked about a bunch of times is the way that the sort of the propaganda elements of pharma have, um, you know, really sort of monopolized the the sort of public space around this. And obviously once you have the rules in place at the WTO, that, that creates a completely different playing field. But I think one of the things that, you know, you're suggesting is that it's not just like that there's a, a sort of public um, kind of you know ad, sort of the ad advertising Madison Avenue side of this, and it's not just the sort of like the actual um sort of formal legal power, it's also that you have all of these professionals sort of uh both outside and inside of government who treat this regime as if it is just like the air that they breathe um and and I would imagine to some extent some of them or at least uh beyond just treating it as sort of like obvious and, and normal and natural, they actually think it's a good thing and they don't even have to be paid necessarily at this point by the industry to think that, I mean, is that more or less your, your sense of the, yeah. the way that the, I think that's the a government good way of putting side of this it. works?
0: Yeah, I think that's true, but it's also true that so many of them are getting paid now. I mean, by okay. basically opened up an age of the corporatized university in terms of research um, and that environment now is, is totally farmed up. Um, medical journals now are so dependent on pharma industry, you know, money for advertising and the freebies and the rest of it. And they, the old ethical industry used to forbid on any brand name from appearing in, a, in an ad in a medical journal. Um, so that was, a, you know, they got medicine in their pocket that way. And that's been deepened over the years as the AMA fought, um, you know, Medicare and universal healthcare and the drug companies joined them in those crusades. Um, and then the regulatory revolving door is another situation, which you guys know about. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, a lot of these people have, have, um, grown up in that world where it's totally normalized, whether they're making money or not, but a lot of them are, and there's, there's so many avenues now. It's hard, almost hard to like avoid them no matter where you really are doing research. You're you're partnered up with with some big pharma, or you're trying to start a biotech across the street from your university that you can flip to right. a pharma, even though it's completely all the science is funded from the NIH. Yeah,
1: it's it's like an absolutely um, sort of predatory situation that they've got themselves set up in, where they can just like sort of soak all these um, soak all these like things up into the like broader regime and still be able to claim like oh well you know drug research and development is so expensive and there are so many failed compounds that you know we've got to justify this you know $350,000 $1.6 million price tag on this brand new biologic cancer drug for children or whatever you know it's it's like they've developed this strategy this media strategy for for buying a way to have it (laughs) both ways. ways.
0: <laughs> yeah. That meme you just mentioned is really a really central meme to the, this history, of the pharmaceutical industry, the $2.6 billion drug or whatever it is now, because it's been updated like 20 times. It started <laughs> off as the $700 million drug at the, the Tufts center, which was founded by a group of people who were at that Stigler conference in the early seventies that I mentioned, <laughs> where they sort of hatched the idea for how to rewrite all this stuff. Um, they came up with that meme out of out of that center. And the funny thing about that number is it's it's even more maddening than you think because within that number, the in, the, the math behind it is so ridiculous. They actually account <laughs> for opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. Like and then, of course, there's the marketing that they spend that they don't ever talk about. That meme is just uh, there's a, there's a lot there. <laughs>
1: No, no, I mean, it's like it's one of the things that, that drives me the most mad about, you know, the sort of litany of different pharma lines that they have, especially I have, I have a rare disease and like I'm on one of those like big grossing biologic drugs. And, you know, it's frustrating because like rare and orphan diseases, it's very difficult to get um, companies to develop drugs. So there's this, you know. There's this whole practice of disease organizations putting down money down to uh, cushion the risk, right? Because yep. there's the you know there's this whole grand lie that we've built legislation around, right? The idea that drug development is expensive and must be incentivized, you know.
0: Yeah, they they've gamed the the orphan drug law several times now. Um, yeah. it's, it's a scandal. They every time they're supposed to be doing something to reduce prices or incentivize uh, under, you know, under researched areas, they, they, they use it as an excuse to just demand tons of goodies. I was just talking to this guy, Al Engelberg, who co-wrote the uh, Hatch-Waxman Act, the Generics Act from 1984. Mm. And when they started talking about streamlining the generic approval process to get more generic, um, Uh, competition. The first thing industry did was they started a lobbying campaign demanding seven years extra monopoly uh, (laughs) patent protection, basically as like, you know, if they're going to get something, if they're going to cut into our profits, we need, we need more monopoly time. And it's just like, what are you talking about? There's nothing in in the book that says you, you have to have market exclusivity for any amount of time, let alone seven extra years, just because we're going to like, rationalize the law so generic companies can, can produce and compete. Yeah. They're like the white shark of, of, of capitalism.
3: (laughs) What occurs to me, it occurs to me that like one of the big pieces of drama that comes from your work is, you know, I think when we talk about capitalists and the way that they kind of operate, it can get, you know, you begin to reduce things to this sort of cost profit, uh, equation, um, which is absolutely there at the heart of it, but at the same time, in order to to do these things, the the way that people have to like use instrumental power, it's it's like as these actors, they have so much invested not only in just like the profit, but all of the the moral economy, um, and the almost that they they seem like they're in a way like engaging in sort of almost like medieval or, or early modern like statecraft in order to create the world in which they can do this. Right. So like there's, there's a drama that almost seems like, you know, Machiavellian and like the proper, like in the classic, like sense of that word, uh, because they seem to be behaving just like states behave, um, in this international system.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're the, the farm industry is wealthier than a lot of states. They make the fattest profit margins of any sector of the economy. They have since the fifties. It's not even close. Cause they, it's basically, they make gold out of straw. I mean, most drugs, you buy the basic ingredients by the pound or the ton, and you sell it by the microgram or the milligram. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah.
1: And I mean, in many ways, like a lot of times it's like, yeah, you can like look at all this stuff and look at all the things they're able to do and say that's like enormously depressing. But I don't know, to me, it's like actually kind of liberating to think about how much of the uh, sort of how much of the current norms are actually these like complete Fabrications and social constructions, because just as like they had, you know, pharma has had the opportunity to create such a favorable uh, landscape for itself. You know, it's it's also like heartening to hear, you know, just how threatened they were by, um, you know, countries in the global south showing solidarity or projects that actually um, do challenge simple things like the development of generics in other countries.
0: Yep. Yep. No, if there's any hope. If you want to feel positive about anything, it's, it's knowing how terrified they are at all times. And they are so <laughs> terrified of this waiver. Anything right. that suggests it doesn't have to be this way is a risk that the whole game will be up because there is nothing natural or necessary about any of this. And everyone's pissed off about it
3: see i find that very interesting right <laughs> is that like they are constantly looking over their shoulders or th- seem to in your, your estimation and yet it is it is very easy to feel in the face of all of these things hopeless right uh but like i guess the question is like you know, what what sense do we make out of their fear right is it is it them just sort of uh O- overcompensating or that there is actually something that, that could happen at any moment that would disrupt this entire regime. I
0: mean, it's a captured government. They, they they basically have a lock on, on the government. I mean, not, not just them, but you know, they, they, they have their lobbying operation is the richest famously in, in town has been for a long time. And there's no threat immediately that there's going to be this populist wave like, you had mid-century uh, when patents were very much on the table. I mean, during the, the New Deal, the TNAC reports were very anti-patent, especially anti-drug patent. And it came out of the war. That debate was fierce. You know, Kennedy took away their power to, to monopolize government research. Like, you know, there there's no danger of that happening anytime soon, uh, just because we have such a corporatized um, federal government and especially in the bureaucracies of the, the NIH and sorry, I almost said H.E.W. I've been reading all this stuff. For books. Yeah. I was going to say the
3: sixties. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, if we had a government that was responsible to the people, this could be done in a week, <laughs> you know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's just a question. You don't even have to, the most maddening thing about it is you don't even need any new laws. It's already on the books like as a sovereign power the government could cite you know 1498 in the US code they could cite by dole you know they could even invoke you know the constitution <laughs> clause that gives them power of eminent domain i mean there there's no shortage <laughs> of tools here it they're just not used because industry doesn't want them to be used and they were written in consultation with industry and They're the dominant partner here. Like it used to be the industry was the junior partner with the government in research. And now they're the senior partner. And the lack of self-respect is embarrassing that our government has never used the public interest march and trigger on Baiduul. I mean, it's just, I would be humiliated to be a federal official if I had any sense of like, you know, civic understanding of anything it's just it's just embarrassing how little self-respect is involved of us just shoveling billions of dollars of research into these monopoly hands and the fish also the military does it all the time we should say that doesn't get enough attention like the military doesn't give a shit they order generics against u.s patents a lot they ordered off-brand tranquilizer in the 50s because uh the company that was making it uh, was charging <laughs> ridiculous money and they were like uh we're going to order it we from Sweden we need more
3: tranquilizers <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. a phrase I often say to myself
1: <laughs> well Alex thank you so much if people want to find your work where they, where can they find you
0: I don't really have much of a social media presence. I have a website. It's my last name.
1: Well, we'll link to We'll link to the pieces that Alex has written um, for the pan, um, or throughout the pandemic in the episode description. How about that? Oh, you
0: mean where, like literally where? Yeah. Lately. Oh, I've it doesn't been, matter. Been, yeah. <laughs> but I guess lately I've been, most of this stuff I've been doing um, on these themes. Have, it's been in the new Republic.
1: Well, I really, I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a lot of fun to get to talk to you about your work. Yeah,
0: Likewise. Yeah. And um, thank you guys for, for doing a great show.
1: We'll leave it there. We will catch you later in the week. Become a patron at patreon.com slash panel pod to get access to all of our Monday bonus episodes. The one from this Monday was fantastic. Um, we really got into the like details of the latest push for the public option. It's a really interesting conversation. Push
2: or lack thereof. Or rather. La- yeah, exactly. Right.
1: Like what even is it? So, all right. Well, with that, as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
2: All right. Take care.